Hello and welcome to It'll Be Alright in the 90s, Paul Gay Campus's favourite nostalgia podcast. Uh, I'm Alex and I'm joined as always by Stu Jocelyn, who last weekend I happened to have an in-person pint with for the first time since we started this podcast. It was certainly the highlight of my year so far. Yes. How are you, Stu? I'm, I'm very well and uh, as an early birthday present, I gifted you uh, a late 1994 copy of the now defunct car magazine Car Week. Yes. Uh, so, so, so that that was that was my gift to you, and I hope you enjoyed it over your over your birthday weekend, mate, and many happy returns, of course. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's on my coffee table right now. Um, oh yeah, there's some brilliant features in there. It's um, a true record of uh, of mid '90s motoring, and uh, yeah, I'll be cherishing that. For yeah. I'm really thinking time. of buying that Astro Sport now. You know, the Mark yeah. Three. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not surprised based on the review they gave it. Before we get started on the episode proper, I should say that. Um, this week's episode is sponsored by People's Phone. Yes. So the People's Phone have, have more mobile phone showrooms than British Telecom, and they can offer prices that are unmatched by any of their national telecommunications rivals. Uh, and if you visit any one of their showrooms within the Tri-County region, so that's Wiltshire, Somerset and Avon, uh, and give the store manager the discount code ALLRIGHT90s, uh, you can get 5% off the entire Motorola range. So um, not a bad Fantastic. discount if you, um, yeah, just... Uh, give them our that discount code and I mean, so, we yeah, just give and give don't we that's, that, we that's do, just yeah. us all over you know and but, uh, uh, there, there might be some more to follow so uh, so keep listening for your uh, for your discounts yeah so thanks a lot to people's phone uh this this episode's uh, sponsor okay enough of the uh, the corporate speak um <laughs> Stu, I, I believe you have some correspondence yeah well if we we can start off with a delve into the mailbag um and i'm sure i can uh, put a little bed in here to um to, to herald its arrival we we have had a message from uh, a listener another alex um, and it's with regards to the Simpsons episode, which we did a few weeks back. Uh, and he says, uh, I had to press pause at three minutes, 21 seconds. This is precise. This is what we like. Yeah. And pick up on, on your comment, and he's, he's, he's talking to me, that good Simpsons, he says in, in inverted commas, stopped in season four or five. And he says, I'd like to hear a retraction to that statement in next week's show. Uh, and then he goes on to list Homie the Clown, Who Shot Mr. Burns, Bart versus Australia, Two Dozen and One Greyhounds, Home of the Great, Grandpa versus Sexual Inadequacy, and they're all just in season six, he says. Surely Good Simpsons continues to at least season seven or eight, even nine, although it probably does start to tail off there, he agrees. Well, I had to listen back to to the episode in question because, of course, I had to defend myself from this allegation. And what I actually said was that the golden period of The Simpsons ended in around ended it around that time which i think is true where every episode is a is a must watch i i totally agree that in seasons five six seven eight and onwards there are many many great episodes uh, and i wouldn't i wouldn't be without them of course not but um i just thought that the real golden period when the writers were, were bang on in everything was absolute 100 percent quality was that season two to four period so i hope that answers uh, your question alex uh, and yeah, please do write in again if you uh, if you want to pick us up on anything else. I know I know he's uh, he's listened to every episode so far and he's a big fan of the pod. So expect to be hearing from him again soon. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, thanks for your correspondence, Alex. And um, totally understand where he's coming from on that. And um, 
but I think you've clarified the difference between good and golden era, I suppose. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, and I agree. All those episodes he names. I mean, uh, Homie the Clown is uh, is is one of my favourites. Didn't make my top three, but it's, it's certainly one of my favourites. So, um, yeah, no, absolutely agree, and happy to clear that point up. Regarding today's episode, we are going to be talking about computer games, specifically games from the first half of the decade, so 1990 to 1994, inclusive. What does what does this era of games mean to you, Stu? Like, what's what's your context? Well, my context is that the, the games I'm going to talk about today are both from from two different consoles. Um, so I've got one from the Game Boy and two from the Mega Drive, um, and that is because the Mega Drive is like the first sort of home console that I can remember my my dad buying and, and us having in the house. It's still in my old bedroom at home. He's got he was. He was well into it in the sort of early to mid 80s and, and carrying on because there's a spectrum zx in my in my cupboard at home and there's also a commodore 64 so the old tape loaders mm-hmm. yeah um so we had both of those and he, he doesn't play games at all anymore but he, he carried on right up until sort of playstation 2 um, and he always says that he, he stopped when they changed the putting mechanism on tiger woods 2007 <laughs> he was an expert on 2006 and then he couldn't do the putting and he, he hasn't played any video games since the mid, the mid to early to mid nineties is definitely is Mega Drive and Game Boy for me. Although I think from having seen your list, um, your consoles are slightly slightly different and more maybe computer than, than video based. Mm-hmm. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, you would. Yeah, first I just want to say it's it's nice. Is it nice? I don't know. It's amusing maybe that um, Tiger Woods was the was the straw that broke your dad's gaming <laughs> back. Your 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 dad's gaming bag. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was something um, like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah but I guess we all have our limits we all have our limits and and that was his Uh, but yeah for me the the context was as you said it was a bit different Um, I didn't I never had a Sega or a Nintendo I did I think in the family at some point we had a a ZX Spectrum same as you and apparently an Auric Atmos I asked my dad about this what what we'd had in the the early days I've never heard of it Um, apparently we had one but I think it was maybe before my time yeah, my my earliest memories of of gaming, as it were, is is the Commodore sixty four, same as you, I think, and mm-hmm. and the cassettes, games on cassettes, <laughs> which I don't really, I don't understand how that works because you'd have thought the cassette only goes one way. So how I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, true. But yeah, the big thing for us was the Amiga. So we had an Amiga five hundred, then a six hundred, then finally a twelve hundred. I can't really differentiate between them. They all looked the same, and they all just had similarish games but um i guess it has got the games got better yeah i remember we would get games from from trade it or um boot sales and i, I yeah. specifically remember getting this just a big plastic container or floppy disk they're all copied games i suppose um from i think from trade it uh, and me and my brother just sort of working our way through them just trying them all because <laughs> there, there must have been there were dozens in there yeah big time amiga for, for me i have virtually no experience really of of mega drive and um nares and snares and stuff like that so uh i think we're gonna have slightly different approaches to this but yeah i mean well on the on the other side of it i never owned an amiga either so it, i think it's it's going to make for a good episode that we're possibly talking about things that the other one doesn't know about yeah so similar to other previous episodes uh we're gonna pick i think we've picked three games each that are sort of a meaningful to us yeah. or were meaningful to us uh, and maybe a wild card or two afterwards and um yeah uh, that that sort of loose format so uh do you want to go first with your your first choice yeah i'd love to 
this is my my, my first choice um, had to be uh, a game called European Club Soccer from uh, from 1992. <clears throat> this is one of two games I'm going to talk about, which actually came with, as I remember it, came with the Mega Drive when my father purchased it from Rumbelows, who sponsored us uh, on the last episode. Yeah. That used to be uh, down there on Chippenham High Street. Doing a bit of research into this for, for a few things I, I never knew. Um, so linking into the Amiga, this is actually based on a game called Manchester United Europe, which was mm. on the Amiga before and released one year earlier in 1991. And looking at the cover of this game, it has the, this, this must be the only image they were able to license for the cover of the game because it's not one of their particularly most glamorous players or even most well-remembered players, unless you're a member of the goalkeepers union like me. But the cover of Manchester United Europe is uh, Les Seeley celebrating celebrating either a goal that Manchester United scored or maybe a penalty saved or something, but, but he's celebrating on the front of the box. Anyway, but I digress. Uh, European Club Soccer, the cover is a lovely uh, drawing of uh, a player scoring an overhead kick, which is which is really nice. And it's just based on the old European Cup format. So all the teams were in there with, with the correct team names. But it was one of these things where the names of the players, they, they couldn't license those. So they were made up by feeding the real names of the players' squads at the time and then mixing the four names and, and surnames up uh, to oh, make... Okay to make random names. Yeah. So uh, instead of Paul Parker and Dennis Irwin, you might get Dennis Parker and Paul Irwin, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, so this is a game that really the first game I can remember playing and and enjoying on a console. I was obviously getting into football at that point. Um, I remember my best friend at the time from primary school, Matt Coe, coming around like, for, you know, for tea and to play after school one, one night. And we played European Cup soccer and he beat me. And I remember... Uh, we were arguing about it in the car when my dad was dropping us off afterwards, would have been the Cavalier. And uh, then I didn't speak to him at school for about three days afterwards. So I, <laughs> I, I, t- I took that defeat very, very hard. Oh dear. Yeah. So it made by a, a small publishing company called uh, Chrysalis with a K. So not the, the big Chrysalis music publishing. And as they were based in Rotherham, Rotherham United were actually one of the teams in the game. So you could you could take them through, <laughs> nice. the, uh, despite the fact that they were in like, Division 3 at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, like, like I say, it was one of the, the games that came with the console. So obviously, we played it a lot until we got some more games, and it really was my first taste of console gaming. And something important which stuck with me later on in my childhood was it was my first taste of making up teams and kits and uh, names of players and things because there was a function to do that. You couldn't save it, obviously, but there was a function to do that. Um, where you could make up a kit and choose a team name and, and, and do the players. And that was something that, that stuck with me right up until about FIFA 2000 when I designed the all-conquering uh, Laycock Town team who played in <laughs> who played in orange, black and black. And, uh, oh, lovely. And, and won every every trophy going. So, so yeah, and the theme music is, is great. when we were debating coming together to do this podcast what well, didn't i suggest we should have that as the theme music but we never we didn't yeah. do it for rights reasons i think yeah you did yeah exactly <laughs> we, we were a bit scared of um being uh, of being sued by um sega or chrysalis or, yeah, yeah. or whoever for using their theme tune so we we didn't in the end but yeah it's, it's a cracking sort of early mm-hmm. 90s bit <laughs> bit core yeah theme tune 
indeed. Um, I mean, it's the game itself is sub. I wouldn't say. I suppose the standard at the time would have been sensible soccer, um, mm-hmm. and it was. It was, it was sort of like that, really. Um, it, it was quite hard to control. I seem to recall. I don't remember ever scoring that many goals. Um, mm. Well, maybe I was just too young and, and you know not really grasping it. But um, yeah, very nice. Um, yeah, I I hadn't ever played it because of as as I mentioned not having those consoles. But it, it very much reminded me of um, a game called Kick Off Two, mm-hmm. which we had on the Amiga, uh, and also Sensible Soccer, like you say, Sensible Soccer, and then Sensible World of Soccer, which we had that sort of top down top-down view I, I yeah i looked at some uh some youtube playthroughs on <laughs> online before before doing this and yeah i love the sound effects like uh, i think that the sound of the people kicking the ball sounded like someone trying to get out of a cardboard box i thought um <laughs> yes and, that's exactly right <laughs> and the sound of when when one of the players scored a goal the sort of shout that they made was kind of like it was like a, a surprised yelp uh, <laughs> or almost pain And I love the sort of creative ways they create these these sounds. Um, My favourite yeah. one of those is um, when the, the teams run out and then the referee runs out with the ball, drops it on the centre spot, and then instead of a whistle, you hear a voice say, kick off. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's possibly, although I think he does blow his whistle like for half-time and full-time. So, um, mm. But yeah, maybe that, that should be one of these. They're all about um, introducing changes to football, aren't they, at the moment? That's going around again. And maybe one, yeah. of, one of them should be that the referee has to shout, kick off into a microphone instead of yeah instead of using his whistle yeah yeah and they should definitely like keep using that a remote control car to bring the ball on like they were using in the years <laughs> i like that uh my first choice is obviously for the amiga all my choices mm-hmm. are for the amiga uh and it's a game called cannon fodder and i've chosen this one because it was probably my favorite game of this this era and one of my favorite games to this day not that i ever play it anymore but so it's developed by Sensible Software, so same obviously same as people, Sensible yeah. Soccer, uh, and it's released in 1993 on the Amiga, uh, and then Virgin ported it to other consoles and I think to the PC. And so it's basically a shoot 'em up game where the camera was from high up above, a little bit like Sensible Soccer, um, I suppose, and you were sort of point and click and move your troop around across the yeah, various different war zones. And it was a sort of controversial game at the time. Um, infamous that's what i mean it's an infamous game and there was actually criticism from from the daily star and the british legion even uh and some mps this was all on wikipedia this is not from my from my memory and it was criticized because it had this this juxtaposition of of humor and obviously the serious war element and i remember when i first played it i must have been i don't think we got it when it first came out but i must have been eight or nine sort of thinking, not really liking the fact that it was seemed to be making a bit of a joke about war. I was deep in my uh, my World War II fascination age at this point, so I was sort of really into Airfix and um, watching repeats of the World at War on BBC Two on a Monday night at 7 o'clock. So I was, I, I was a bit sniffy about it, which is weird for an eight-year-old to be sniffy about computer games for that, for that reason. But... Um, I, I sort of I now subsequently know and also through playing it because obviously I did get over that and ended up loving it but the the games makers and the developers have actually said said at the time um they had quite a strong anti-war message behind a lot of it because um, there's some really kind of interesting elements to it it's not just 
like a normal shooting game. So every character you use has an, a unique name. Mm-hmm. And if they die, then that's it. They don't, they are dead. They don't come back. And at the end of every mission, it will give you a list of all the people who've died over, over like superimposed over these images of some poppies and kind of sad music. Mm-hmm. And then most interestingly, I think, is in between the missions, it shows this landscape of it's some hills in the background and the gate. And then it's this line of, of the troops, sort of new recruits kind of coming round the corner and then they all line up in front of this barracks. And then as you go through, uh, the more troops who die on your missions, you get more graves appearing on the hill behind. Right. So it kind of, it perfectly matches how many troops you've lost. And it was things like that, I think, that the developers were were trying to provide this this anti-war message behind, behind the game. Mm-hmm. I actually have a quote here from one of the developers, sorry. Um, he said... Uh, so the graves show that people died and their names mean that they're not just faceless sacrifices. So, yeah, it was all intentional. And even though there was this humorous side to it, like the theme tune had kind of funny lyrics and um, the tagline was, war has never been so much fun. that's obviously a bit a bit edgy but yeah behind that there was actually something kind of serious and I, I really liked that and I just added to the to the fact that it was also really playable and just made it into this thing that was quite profound in my young gaming life and yeah I look back on it now and consider it one of definitely one of my favorite games one of the best games I, yeah. I played around that time cool well go, going back to um to my aforementioned uh, best friend from primary school Matt Coe so we, we're actually quite different in a lot of ways. So I, I was into football and he wasn't really. And, and his computer game style was the the war and the, and the command and conquer type stuff, mm-hmm. which we which we spent a lot of time playing when we got a bit older. But what I was going to say, if, if you didn't mention it, which you have, is that um, my, my main memory of, of cannon fodder is seeing the, the names coming up at the end of the mission. We're scrolling up with the poppies and everything. And it's interesting you say about there, there being a bit of outrage at the time and it's uh, it's quite a contrast, I suppose, to the, the way that the gaming is today. That something like, you know, a Call of Duty or is Medal of Honor still going? I don't know. Mm, I'm not sure. No. But something like that, probably now that people don't sort of blink an eye at it. So yeah, that, that's uh, that's an interesting, very interesting uh, choice you've made there. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. What's your what's your second choice? Uh, so I'm going to go to the uh, Game Boy now, and. My choice for this one is Super Mario Land 2, uh, which is subtitled Six Golden Coins. I got my Game Boy and it wasn't, I don't remember it being a birthday present or a Christmas present. So I think I must have sweet talked my my folks into getting it for me out of season, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember getting it from Woolworths and there there must have been some sort of deal on because I remember it came with, it was one of the original um, brick Game Boys. It was bright yellow. And it came with a carry case and it came with Super Mario Land 1 and Super Mario Land 2. So, so that must have been a pretty sweet deal and I managed to talk my parents into it. Um, but I would say that this is the game that I have played and completed the most times out of any game I've ever played. Um, I still have the original cartridge today, which goes in my Game Boy Advance, which is around here somewhere, um, which, which can still play all of the old Game Boy games. And yeah, I still dig out occasionally and, and, and clear the games and, and start again. 
so to give a bit of background to the game itself, uh, Wario has taken over Mario Land and in particular the castle and he's holding uh, Princess Peach hostage. Mm -hmm. uh, and in order to gain entry to the castle and, and save the Peach, Mario has to move through the uh, various zones in Mario Land and collect the golden coins that Wario has hidden behind the bosses. Um, so just off the top of my head, uh, there was the tree zone, the Mario zone, which is just it's just a big Mario and you move up through his body to the different levels. Mm -hmm. um, there's the pumpkin zone, the turtle zone and the macro zone. And also the space zone. I nearly forgot about that then. The space zone. Yeah, that was one where you had to do like a sort of a fake level first to get to it, if you see what I mean. And then, then you got to it. But the space level was always really hard and uh, and always took me a lot of time to and always took me a lot of time to complete. But but yeah, so th th this is really the first sort of platformer that I uh, that I got a hold of and started playing. Um, and I was still playing it when Pokemon came out in the sort of late later 90s on the Game Boy because I totally ignored Pokemon and carried on playing Super mm. Mario Land 2. That's because nostalgia's in your blood, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. I was already on the nostalgia trip then. Yeah. <laughs> Eschewing anything new. That's that's the way we do it, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Me and new stuff doesn't go together, as Keith Richards once said. So, yeah, it's uh, the soundtrack again is great. And uh, are we going to be dropping bits of soundtrack in all over the place? Because you mentioned the cannon fodder theme tune, didn't you? So we'll mm. find that as well and put that in. one of the it's sort of considered as one of the greats um you know of of the game boy collection of games um and i'm sure there are lots of people like me who, st who still play it it's just um uh, it's just brilliant you know it's, it's still challenging even today when i play it i find new new routes to get to places and then little things i hadn't noticed before and doors to go through and stuff like that so that there's always uh, there's always things to find and it kicked off i've never sort of played or, or done anything with mario before and uh, it kicked off something which I've, I've stuck to probably more than Sonic, uh, which I also had on the Mega Drive. But but I think I was more of a Mario fan. And to this day, I'm still trying to complete Super Mario 64, uh, which I might go and have another crack at after we finish recording tonight. So yeah, so, so it yeah. wasn't it wasn't you that just spent however million it was on <laughs> on the original copy of 64, was it? No, no, I'm I'm happy enough with my cartridge only purchase for about seventeen pounds from eBay. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, I think that's wise. Uh, we haven't the sponsorship of the pod is not quite at the level where we can uh, reach to that sort of. Very uh, true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if people's phone can help out with that either, can they? No, so, yeah. No. I know you said you only had uh, Amigas and you didn't have some Mega Drives or anything, but did you have anything handheld at all? I didn't. Uh, well, I did in a way. I had those um, really cheap little. Gay, handheld games that um we wish to just get from uh from boot sales but it would be sort of one game on a little very small i don't know what the screen's called like not an led but just yeah i, know, yeah, I think I know. and so the game yeah. that i had that i remember was just a motorbike game where you would sort of scroll from side to side to avoid obstacles mm -hmm. and stuff <clears throat> um yeah yeah and uh, yeah, that was it. That was the one game, and that was the one thing you did in that game, and that that sort of made made do on some car journeys. 
but no, I never had anything. Didn't have a Game Boy. I remember playing on someone's Game Gear once, and that was quite exciting. Playing Sonic for the first time. But no, no, we just had to make do with those those tiny little ones. Okay. Well, next time we meet, I'll, I brought you a car magazine. Maybe I'll have to lend you the Game Boy Advance so you can. Uh... <laughs> Now, I'll clear a space for you on six golden coins and you can experience it for yourself. Yeah, yeah, that'd be <laughs> great. My second choice would be um, a game. This was a last minute edition, actually. I had originally chosen a game called The Settlers, which um, I'm not going to talk about. I instead replaced it with a game called Toki, uh, which was originally released in arcades in 1989, but it was ported to the Amiga in 1991. So it, it just about gets into our. Uh, uh, time frame uh, and this was just kind of fairly generic side-scrolling uh, arcade game where even the um the story sort of the intro story was generic in that you were uh, you played this this guy who had been turned into a, a, a i think by an, into an ape mm-hmm. by this this foe whoever it was and your your girlfriend or the the object of your desire had been kidnapped by this this same baddie um, which is is definitely the story of a lot of arcade games from this era i know it's a, the story of bubble bubble which is mm-hmm. a, a classic from the 80s uh so it's just yeah classic setup and then it's a side scrolling game where you're this ape and you just have to work your way through these these levels you can spit fire for some reason um there's, <laughs> there's some sort of side effect of this this transformation uh, and i've chosen this because it um it was fun but it wasn't the best game I played in this era by any stretch of imagination, but it it means something to me because it was my first taste of the phenomena that a lot of or many younger siblings will understand, which is uh, spectating whilst your older brother or sister plays a game. Because <laughs> I did a lot of that with this game. Uh, I, I distinctly remember coming back uh, for after school uh, in summer and watching my brother play this game mm-hmm. uh, whilst eating... Do you remember Instant Whip? Yeah, yeah, It was like Angel Delight, but uh, yeah. made by birds. We used to make ice lollies of that using those those ice lolly molds that you could mm-hmm. get from um, the supermarket. I remember eating one of them and, and watching my brother play this game. And it wasn't a bad thing. Like It wasn't like, oh, I want to go, or this is so boring. It was actually, it was a sort of form of entertainment that you don't really get anymore when you become old enough to be good enough for yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. A later game I did this with a lot was was uh, Resident Evil, uh, where my brother played a lot of that, and I would just watch because it was a bit too, a bit beyond me. But um, so it just sort of represents that, like a particular point of my youth, uh, and and a style of of gaming observation. Um, but also, I thought it's kind of interesting because it's an arcade game, and it got me thinking about how many of these arcade games or or ports from arcades, you just couldn't save it. So I, we never, even my brother who was, you know, three and a half years older than me and he was better at it, he still struggled. And we, so we never really saw about two thirds of the game because we just couldn't <laughs> get past a certain point. And that was really, really normal, I think, for games. Like I mentioned a minute ago, Bubble Bubble, another arcade game that we loved. We played, played it so much, but we still couldn't get past certain points. So we just, you just never see it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of strange how that's probably true of a lot of people, especially under a certain age. So these games that had been developed, you know, a lot of money put into them, people just wouldn't see that much of because you couldn't save it. And it's just like one of those weird idiosyncrasies. Uh, yeah, so it's just, it, it's for that reason. And I was watching some Amiga uh, long plays on YouTube and found this game and it was kind of the first time I'd ever seen anything beyond level two. But it's, yeah, that's why I've chosen it for that for that sort of, 
sibling what you're watching sibling play and also just the what it represents from from arcade game ports which you obviously don't get anymore because arcade games mm-hmm. have, have ceased to exist i believe sadly yeah um well the first thing i sort of thought about when when watching the long play was quite a striking similarity i found to donkey kong i can't mm. lie you know a uh yeah. an ape um, running around throwing things and uh, <laughs> and you know jumping up onto ledges and stuff it, I, I found uh you know I, that was the first thing that, that sprung to mind i think there's so much of that in this era wasn't there just oh, games yeah, yeah. That were complete yeah. rip-offs of yeah. of other more famous games like we had a game on amiga called gloom which was exactly the same as doom i mean they hadn't even <laughs> to change the name particularly but yeah you just there was a load of that around wasn't there mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting you say about the um, the sort of spectatorship aspect of it because I remember doing the same thing with with my dad. I mean, I'm an only child, so I, don't, I didn't have any sort of brothers or sisters to watch playing games or have watched me. As I said, my dad was a big gamer, and uh, later on in the 90s, he was well into Tomb Raider, um, mm. and, I, and I would sit and watch him playing that because, like you say, at the age I was, it was it was slightly beyond me, but. Uh, but again, like you say, he he would get to a certain point, and he, even though he, by then he could save it, there would just be a point where he couldn't he couldn't get past it. And I, I remember him buying a guidebook to uh, to try and see where he was going wrong and see if he could find what to do next, because he was just totally stuck. And uh, I don't think he ever did finish it, unfortunately. But but yeah, that's a big memory for me too. The um, just watching just watching a game being played, and I suppose now with with things like long plays on YouTube, you can get that experience and, and watch it being done properly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's actually there's quite a phenomenon of of that for for young people. It's not just like nostalgia mm-hmm. nerds like us looking back at old games. I think that's that's a huge thing. Like Twitch, I mean, Twitch streaming is massive. They get millions True, of followers yeah. watching people play play games like Minecraft and whatnot. So there there clearly is something about that, isn't there? Watching people, yeah, especially yeah. when as games get even better as they are now in terms of visuals and and stories and stuff, then it's you know it's not getting far off watching watching a a film or something so it makes sense oh, yeah very true in fact i'm gonna to have to dive onto the, the super mario 64 one in a minute just to um just to refresh my memory before i give mm. it another go <laughs> what's your your third choice then yeah so third and final choice so by the time we got this game which again is from 1992 uh, my dad and i were making a regular weekly visit to games exchange in chippenham fondly known as uh, the pink planet yeah and that was where we would go every week and just essentially see what we could pick up. We might take some some games that we'd finished or, or weren't playing and then take them in to see if we could part exchange them. But I think by then, with the Mega Drive being a slightly older console, was that normally the games were only a few quid and they were pocket money attainable. So if I had like a fiver in my pocket, I could there'd, there'd definitely be a game for like four ninety nine at the most, or you know maybe two ninety nine if it was just a cartridge. Yeah. Uh, or something like that but I remember picking this one up n- not really knowing how good it would be and then taking it home and it, and it being one of the one of the greatest we ever had and it's called Where in the World is Carmen San Diego now listeners might be more familiar with this uh, through the TV series or, or the cartoon what I didn't know was that the the TV series is actually based on the game rather than the other way around um okay. yeah i thought i thought that it was uh it was a typical um you know video game follow-up but it's actually yeah. the other way around which is uh which is great and, and very unique so it's a largely text-based sort of adventure mystery game um and the idea is that 
uh, Carmen Sandiego and her vile henchmen, that's the uh, that's the acronym, uh, yeah. you know, Spectre-esque, if you like, mm. um, are committing crimes all over the world and leaving clues behind them. And it's up to you to guess uh, or try and track them down and, and find the find the villain before it's too late. And eventually you move up and up and you catch all the henchmen and then you finally catch Carmen herself. You might have a map with five or six different capitals cities you can you can travel to and you'll have a clue to start with so um they might say uh, interpol last saw the criminal boarding a flight or at an airport uh, wearing a fez uh, and then if if uh, rabat was on the map then you would know to <laughs> you would know they've probably headed to morocco yeah, yeah. Um, and then you'd go there and then it would it would go on from there and then be like objects and things like that and you would you'd have to work out which building they'd gone to and, and then if they'd flown to another capital city and stuff like that so and what I didn't realise, of course, at the time was that I was I was learning as well, you know, about the, these capital cities and places that I that I probably wouldn't have, have otherwise known about at that age. And it set me on the right track for a half decent quizzing career. Um, mm. So, so, yeah. so I'm, I'm very I'm very happy for that. It's funny that you, you mentioned about, the, again, not not being able to save stuff, because I remember this one as being a game where when you got to a certain point and you wanted to pick it up again in the manual, there'd be a list of like uh, passwords or, or, or sorry, but what I should say is that there's space for passwords. So then you, you complete level one and then the password will flash up okay, on the screen yeah, and you yeah. write it in the manual. Of course, of course they yeah, wouldn't yeah. give you the password straight away. Would they? I don't know what, don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about. So there's space to write the passwords in as you go along. And then obviously yeah. when you turn the console on next, you can type in the password for level seven and you get there. Yeah. And I think, that went on for for quite some time. Um, that were that way of. I remember Jimmy White's Will Win Snooker being like that as well. <laughs> but why would you? Have, I guess yeah, because you were doing the tournament. Yeah, I I remember that as well. Um, it never seemed to do that on Amiga, but it was yeah something you'd get more with PC and I guess mm-hmm. other consoles. But um, yeah, I definitely remember the, the codes. Yeah, yeah, and I'm pleased to say that this game is actually uh, is still around. My, my copy a couple of years ago, I found. A load of Mega Drive games while helping to clear out my my parents' garage, but no console anymore, sadly. But my friend uh, John, who's the, the guitar player in the, in in the band I'm in, he has a Mega Drive, so I thought, well, he, he can enjoy these. Um, and I know that, that him and uh, I know that him and his girlfriend Claire have been working working their way through through Carmen San Diego over over lockdown and everything like that. So oh, wow. it's, it's still going and it's still you know it's, it's still providing enjoyment all these all these years later and i think actually it was uh, this this mega drive thought came around came along in 1992 but it was a port originally from i think it was apple 2 it came out on first of all in about 1985 so it had been around for for quite some time before it hit the mega drive yeah so i, I wasn't familiar with with this game at all uh, i i was fascinated by the name when you told me it but um yeah i was just looking it up and um it was like a real it was used in schools, wasn't it? I think it was yes, became yeah, yeah, yeah. like an educational game. And I, I noticed on Wikipedia that um, in 1986, uh, the journal Classroom Computer Learning gave it an <laughs> outstanding software award. And I was wondering what the um, what the Classroom Computer Learning award ceremonies were like. Do you think they yeah. were kind of massive sort of galas with uh, with star-studded uh, red carpet um, photo shoots and um, yeah, absolute sort of madness right, when, when so. the alcohol came out. At least, at least hosted by an, uh, a comedian who's been on Live at the Apollo, who's uh, yeah. who's, who's been uh, you know who's doing a corporate, yeah, definitely, <laughs> yeah. Def- definitely that level, I think. Yeah, of, yeah I'm just... off the chain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just amazed that classroom computer learning awards have have 
with, of such esteem that they're they're still sort of recognised on Wikipedia. So, well, there we I, go. Has it, has it got its own page? <laughs> no, it hasn't. But it, just, oh, it was referenced. It was referenced on the article about uh, where in the world is carbon, San Diego. But I guess that's probably testament to how good and how important that game was. So yeah, good choice. Yeah. Well, maybe in twenty years' time, when you know the the nineties is even more history than it is now. Uh, maybe this podcast will be considered for a you know classroom computer learning award because it'll be <laughs> we'll be looking back at you know, time capsules of, uh, of of you know history and things that maybe have, have been forgotten. Maybe that's oh, something God. to look forward to. Yeah, we can hope. Yeah, that reminds me. Actually, we should probably submit some clips from from one of these episodes for the for the Sony's. Well, they're not called the Sony's anymore. I think they call something else. But we need yeah, to yeah. maybe listeners can uh, can email in and say th- th- we think this is the best like three minutes of 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 the pod so far so submit that um mm-hmm. nice little um, support although i yeah. think the best three minutes of our entire pod so far is probably just the the boise advert from the last episode so yeah unfortunately no, that wasn't us so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> but there you go <laughs> right so my my final choice is formula one grand prix and there's, mm-hmm. there's loads of games called something similar to this um, I think there's another game called just F1 on the Amiga and I think there's maybe a game called Grand Prix but this is Formula 1 Grand Prix and it was uh, it's made by Microprose and released uh, in the early 90s I don't have the exact date it uh, there was an offshoot of um, uh, a sequel and then a third and then the fourth one that sort of spanned up until about 2004-ish I think mm-hmm. uh, and it was it was basically a sim racing game of formula one so it wasn't arcade at all it was it was trying to be as realistic as possible with with the hardware and the technology technology that was available to it and i i think i think this game was in that the 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 big plastic box of discs that i mentioned earlier that we got from trade it i think this was in there that's probably where i first discovered it and getting this game coincided with my really deep passion for formula one at that that point so that was started in about 95 for me and then mm-hmm. went on until uh schumacher retired in in about 2006 so it sort of it was kind of the synergy of those two things it was like it, it's a good example of how when we look back at things now games from this era and maybe special effects and films and things like that you can't believe that you ever sort of thought that was okay that looked sort of convincing <laughs> Um, because the the cars in this game are made of a, about six pixels. They, they've had to use six pixels to make a Formula 1 car. And, and as far as I was concerned in 93 or 4, whenever I was playing this, it was I could tell exactly what it was. I knew what, uh, what manufacturer it was, what the tracks were. And it was, yeah, so it, I guess it's testament to the game design that, that, that with working with that m- meager pixel rate, they were still able to do something mm-hmm. that was so convincing. And it just just kickstarted my love of racing games, basically. That you know went on to other Amiga games like uh, Lotus Turbo Challenge, and then onto the PlayStation with Gran Turismo and um, Colin McRae, things like that. This yeah. was this was really where it all started, and um, um, it may even have contributed to my love for Formula One. I'm I'm not quite sure. I can't remember what came first, but um, it's just it's a classic racing game, and it allowed me to 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 live my my dreams as a Formula One driver. That was 
was definitely never going to happen in reality for, for many, many reasons. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just, that's the reason I've chosen it really for that, that, that significance in my, in my life. And, um, also cause the intro music is, is a MIDI version of the chain by Fleetwood Mac <laughs> or, or something that's been clearly based on it. Um, I'm not sure if it's exactly that. Um, we'll, we'll maybe put in a, a clip so the listeners can judge for themselves, whether it's, it's, uh, got the license fee or not. Yeah, it's just uh, it's a great all-round racing game and uh, quite significant um, in my life. Cool. So a couple of questions that spring spring to mind for me for this. Then, uh, so first of all, did your F1 and World War Two obsessions overlap at all, um, <laughs> or was it, it one after done. the other? <laughs> I think if you did a Venn diagram, there'd be probably quite a small section in the middle where they overlapped. Um, maybe maybe World War Two was was somewhat. Um, eclipsed by by Formula One and Michael Schumacher, but I mean, I'm I'm actually into history now. I did a history degree, and I've loved history for 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 years. So I think um, that's probably never gone away. Whereas Formula One has died off a bit um, since mm-hmm. since Schumacher went. So history has outlived <laughs> the Second World War has outlived Formula One in my my consciousness. But um, yeah, so I think it probably there was a bit of an overlap. Okay, and you say that yeah, until Schumacher retired in 2006. So are we ignoring the season when he came back and uh, uh, and drove for Mercedes? I want to say, yeah, was it one season. It, I think it was two, maybe three, actually. Okay. Um, and the fact that I don't know that shows that it had. Yeah. I don't consider that quite as much a part of his 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 career. But um, I would totally ignore that if it wasn't for the fact that I think he did pick up some points for Mercedes okay. and. Um, maybe i think you got a podium as well so i can't really truly ignore it but much like the simpsons that part of his career is very much just series eight and nine of the simpsons you know <laughs> kind of i'll acknowledge it but it's not the golden era brilliant um so i remember having a, a, a formula one game the first one we had was probably for the for the playstation one i would say um so not until quite a bit later and i remember trying to do a, a full length race once so like 76 laps or something like that. And I, I, I couldn't stand up, couldn't stay the course. Um, so were you doing like, were you trying to do the, the full races or were you doing sort of cut down races oh, and seasons yeah. like eight laps cut, or 16 laps or something? Yeah, exactly. Cut down versions. Um, it was the same with um, F1 97 on the PlayStation and uh, and any Formula 1 games after that. It was, I never quite did the full. I think when, when it came to Gran Turismo, there were races that you had to do for like, two three hours you could even do 24 hours on grand yeah, yeah yeah um <laughs> but i don't know how people did that because you're not even supposed to turn your playstation off for that long so <laughs> it's kind of a risk to the hardware but um yeah, yeah. i did then but yeah not with formula one i just think with a racing game like the difficulty level means by the time you've like raced for an hour and a half you're either going to be so far ahead that it's completely meaningless or you'll be so far behind that it's equally meaningless but more frustrating like to have the, the difficulty level just right so you can sort of constantly be fighting with rivals for an hour yeah. and a half, it's just not really going to happen. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we'll probably do a Formula One in the 90s. Uh, I, I know I want to do a touring cars in the 90s. 
yeah. but um, a quick mention for because he's on the, the Formula One game that, that I had, the original PlayStation one. Uh, my probably my favourite Formula One driver of the 90s, John Denise Delatraz, um, <laughs> who's res- responsible for one of Murray Walker's most famous moments. I think I think that the camera was following the leader and um, Delatraz was way back and he was trying to warm his tyres up because he was so far behind and he couldn't like get. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> as the car comes around and passes him, uh, Murray Walker just goes, "What is Delatraz doing?" <laughs> <laughs> no, the derision. Yeah. Murray anyway, is most derisive. We digress. We digress. Mm. We'll, we'll discuss that on a later pod. Do you have a wild card? Something actually you want to throw in while we while we still can? Yeah, just quickly. Um, so my wild card again is one that I think came with the with the Mega Drive. Um, so I've gone for Echo the Dolphin, which is again it's like six golden coins, regarded as one of the best games that, that was made for the console. And I'm probably being unfair on it, to be honest, by saying that it was one of the games I didn't like at the time, but I just did not understand it. So the the idea is Echo the Dolphin is, is lost in the ocean. Uh, you're with the sort of, um, what is it, shoal fleet of dolphins? What, what would you call it? <laughs> um, uh, pod. Lost, it's a pod. Pod, pod, of course. Shoal. You should know that. We're on the pod. Oh, of course, of course. And he gets separated <laughs> from them. Fleet of dolphins. <laughs> There's the episode title right there, um, and it has to find find its way back to you know through through a series of, of challenges and things like that. But it's all you have to work out what's done by you sort of can't you you can talk to other dolphins, but they only talk to you in riddles. Which at the time of not having the internet and, and a game guide to sort of give you an idea of what to do if you were totally stuck, neither me nor my dad could could get started on it because it was just totally impenetrable. I reckon. If I was a bit more intelligent, I'd probably like like the game more. <laughs> and if I gave it a go now, I don't know how successful I would be. But um, but yeah, it just, it just seems totally impenetrable. And um, for that reason, unfortunately, and like I say, probably unfairly, it's a little bit tainted in in my memory, and it's it's sort of remembered for me as one of the, one of the games that I didn't get along with so well. So yeah, the the three two one of of video games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I. I... I never obviously never played it either, but I do remember it coming out. I think it was quite a big deal when it got released because I, I do remember it being talked about on Newsround, on CBBC's Newsround. Oh, okay. There's an actual art, like a, a piece about it being released. Yeah. And then every episode after that, um, or for a certain amount of time, the Newsround intro had a little clip of, of Echo the Dolphin. I, can, <laughs> I was trying to trying to find it on YouTube, um, doing one of my many uh, nostalgic dives on YouTube, trying to find it, but I couldn't find it. Uh, a clip of the news run intro but it was mm-hmm. it was obviously significant at the at that time and like you said if it came out with if it was on launched with the uh console then i guess that was part of the the, the allure of it um i don't know if it was launched with it or if it, it came with the package that my dad got from rumbelows or even if he he just bought it because it was there when he picked it up i don't know i'll have to ask him hmm. there's a lot there's a lot of things on this podcast we talk about and it links back to my dad. And then I'm like, I have to ask him, and I never do. So we'll have to do a catch up with my dad's special, where he, um, yeah, yeah. he puts a record straight on all these things that I've probably got wrong. But yeah, you just read out a li- you read out a list of all the things you'd be meaning to ask him, and he answers them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, no, no, you um, weren't conceived in the back of the escort. No. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, I'm looking forward to that one already. Um, okay, so yeah, my my wild card was. Um, it's not actually the game itself. It's specifically the uh, the intro 
cutscene uh, for a game called Shadow of the Beast 2. And this this game, well, the intro to this game, sorry, scared me so much. And not only did I never play the game, but I had to, I, if I remember this correctly, I think I asked my dad to put it on a very high shelf, the highest shelf in, in the room where we <laughs> kept all the stuff so that it was just like the game itself was away from me. And I, I think it scared my brother as well because he never played it. And like I said, he was three and a half years older. Maybe even scared my dad because he I mean, he didn't play it. Just scared the whole family. I don't and I don't know where it came from. It just seems to sort of turn up one day. I don't know why we right. got it. It's like some sort of um some cursed object that had turned up on our doorstep once and scared <laughs> everyone in the house, like the Babadook or something. Um, but the the cutscene in question is, it, uh, I'll, I'll, we can obviously post a, a link to to this in the the description of the episode so you can yeah. check it out there. But it, and maybe a, a clip of the sound because the sound is part of the reason why it was so scary. But it, the, the cutscene depicts this sort of wind, windswept cottage on this icy tundra, and then there's a sort of these cliffs behind, and you can hear this baby crying inside the the cottage. And then in the background, on top of these cliffs, there's this this solitary figure who's sort of standing there silently, and then so, suddenly turns into this giant winged demon, and then it swoops down on top of the cottage. You can still hear the baby crying and then the camera angle changes so it's sort of looking down at presumably the mother uh nursing the baby and she looks up and then the camera changes from her point of view and you see this giant hand sort of smashes through the roof and then comes down and um just sort of envelops them mm-hmm. and then it shows um the demon sort of flying off from outside with the baby still crying and and the, the mother screaming <laughs> And that was it. And I was just like, I can almost still feel that 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 terror of it, that sort of terror <laughs> you don't really get anymore as an adult. And it was just even yeah, I was watching it again in the lead up to recording this. And um, I can still see why it was creepy. It's even though it's like a really low frame rate, it's obviously really rough graphics. It's the, the combination of the sound and the visuals and the idea of it, I think, still still has a bit of a, a, a an impact. So, um, uh, yeah, check it out and, and have a look and see what you think. But it was... Yeah, it was, it was my introduction to sort of how how scary games can be. And oh, there's been some great games since, like Resident Evil and Silent Hill. But yeah, this is where that sort of started for me. I can definitely sympathise with that reaction of of something being uh, being scared of something and then wanting it as far away from you as possible. Um, yeah. I, I know I did that with a few um, with a few different things uh, <laughs> in my time. I think that I think I think I did it with I definitely did it with a videotape of something. I can't remember what it was, but um, Maybe I shouldn't have been watching it. I don't know, but I was like, "Not saying that, no, get that away from me," sort of thing. So, so yeah, no, I, I, I can sympathise completely. And um, and yeah, having looked at these these Amiga games in uh, in more detail because I've, I've I've never done so before, it's a shame really that I, I feel like I missed out um, on 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 owning one. Um, although I'm obviously grateful for for all the consoles that I did have. But um, I feel like I could have got a lot out of, uh, of, of owning an Amiga, definitely, and, and playing all these different games. Um, so, hey, maybe that's the next, maybe that's the next purchase. Who knows? Yeah. Let's, let's see if I can get one. Well, good luck finding one that still works. So they were fairly unreliable. <laughs> I seem to oh, okay. And my um, wife would be thrilled, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, it's so much nostalgia tied up tied up in Amigas for me, and uh, mm-hmm. 
yeah it's one of the good things about youtube is that you can go back and, and see these things again um I, I was so happy when i i found that um uh shadow of the beast 2 clip just sort of to see what it looked like at this at this age um so yeah there's there's a there is a massive gold mine out there isn't there for yeah. nostalgia it always makes me um it always makes me smile when I when I read the box uh, of, a, of an old game on the back. For instance, going back to European European club soccer, I'm fairly sure it says like um, detail as never before, and uh, you know player movement and all this sort of thing on a such a high level. And then you yeah, obviously yeah. you see it now, 30 years later, and compared to the ultra realistic 1080p, 4K, whatever it is these days, yeah. uh, games you get now, obviously it's um, it's far far behind. But I, I just find it quite quaint when it says you know brilliant graphics and really lifelike and stuff i suppose in 1992 i suppose it was you know yeah yeah. um, yeah. maybe we'll be (laughs) saying the same about today's games in in 20 years although they are getting to a point obviously where almost photorealistic now so true yeah yeah do you have anything to say Stu? before i uh beg everyone to contact us through uh, (laughs) the various mediums uh no i don't think so just just to say um i've enjoyed uh, rattling through these with you greeny i hope you have as well and i hope the listeners have enjoyed it um i know i say this a lot but you know that i think there's plenty more here um especially when we move into the later 90s when we can talk about things like the nintendo 64 and the, and the sega saturn and, and things like that mm-hmm. um, i'm sure we'll do a follow-up episode with games in the in the later 90s Definitely. so yeah really really enjoyed it as always and and already looking forward to uh, to what we're going to talk about next which i don't think we know what that is yet do we but no it's, well, it's a secret to, to both the <laughs> listeners and us great um so if you do want to get in contact with us uh anyone you can find us on twitter at all right 90s that's all letters all right 90s and you can email us on all right 90s at gmail.com and it, yeah it really means a lot to us if if you do give us a like uh subscribe tell your friends about us uh, just generally spread the word and uh that, that would be terrific we will be back in a couple of weeks hopefully and until then uh hopefully it'll be a little bit cooler as well so uh so yeah, yeah. my brain's actually working <laughs> yeah uh but until then uh it's goodbye from me goodbye and uh i think it's goodbye from Stuart. it is goodbye from me and uh, yeah see you next time take care everybody cheerio Is Bella Charles doing?